This episode is brought to you by Speroni. Revolutionize your shop floor with Speroni, where cutting-edge technology meets craftsmanship. Elevate precision, amplify productivity. Speroni. Experience, tradition, the future. Hello, and welcome back to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Mayer. Before we dive into today's awesome episode, don't forget to check us out at our website at manufacturingculturepodcast.com. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Trust us, you do not want to miss out on the action. Now buckle up, listeners, because today we've got a guest whose life is a real-life action-packed adventure full of twists, turns, and a whopping 150,000 domestic air miles in just one year. You know, some people collect frequent flyer miles for a dream vacation, but our guest, Ryan Kulenbeck, collected them to revolutionize the manufacturing world. That's right. Ryan is the co-founder and CEO of Pico MES, the digital manufacturing technology provider. Having cut his teeth at some of the biggest names in automotive manufacturing, like think General Motors, Tesla, Alta Motors, Ryan knows what it's like to be deep in the trenches. And that's why he created, co-created Pico MES in 2019. Sorry, Ryan. He realized that small to mid-sized manufacturers who make up a massive 98% of the market were being left behind in the digital age. So he took a stand saying enough with the digital divide. His vision is a future where manufacturers have a fully connected supply chain, accessible and efficient for everyone. Just imagine a world where suppliers are as interconnected as neurons in a brain, all thanks to Ryan and the team at Pico MES. So get ready for a thrilling ride as we explore the future of manufacturing, get the inside scoop on Pico, and maybe, just maybe, learn how to rack up air miles while changing the world. Let's jump in, shall we? Hello, Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. Thanks for being on, bud. My first video uh, studio recording. Thanks for being part of it. Oh, thanks for having me, Jim, and giving me PTSD from all the, the air miles back. <laughs> it's awesome to be here. What a great intro. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I do want to ask you, before we jump into the about you, I was thinking of this as as we were, uh, as I was doing the intro there, what's the most memorable experience that you had while you were racking up all those miles? Uh, there's... Uh, there's work experiences and then the after work experiences, but I'll stick to the work experiences. <laughs> but I just, I remember sitting, uh, I walked into a machine shop on one of those trips and we were doing cycle time on uh, all of their vertical mills trying to, this is before we could log it. We didn't have the ability to log the times. And uh, I walked in and there was a folding chair and a cooler sitting next to it. And in the cooler was just Mountain Dew on ice. And that's basically, <laughs> I just, it's like, oh, well, you guys know what we're going to be doing here. Oh, this is really fun. So, and I literally just sat there taking stopwatch measurements found in Mountain Dew for a week, wow. trying to figure out all the details necessary so that we could improve their output by 20%. They, we were ramping at the time, so we needed more output in the same machines. Couldn't buy stuff fast enough. So. That's amazing. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So I still remember the Mountain Dew. It's like, oh, you do know me. Oh, we're gonna be friends. <laughs> so you're a big Mountain Dew drinker, is what you're saying? I was, I was then. That was in my thirties. <laughs> I still enjoy it, but I tried to drink a little bit less of it. <laughs> it's amazing coffee, to me yeah. how many, uh, how many different like flavors there are of Mountain Dew. Right <laughs> I like, uh, like the the original wasn't enough. You had to have like yeah. Black and Baja Blast and all these <laughs> other things. It's wild. Um, and that just shows well, me the, how little the, I drink of it because I don't know all the flavors. <laughs> the the diet of champions is stress, adrenaline, and caffeine, right? So, <laughs> hey, I think you and I and any other business owner out there knows that is the diet of entrepreneurship, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit uh, about you and your journey. I mean, you've worked at some big names there. Tell us a little bit about your journey uh, in the manufacturing world. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I'll do my best to, to to move through it quickly. But I grew up in small town in Illinois. I was always into mechanical things, especially cars, and that uh, took me to college in Missouri in a little engineering school in the middle of nowhere. Uh, led me to a job at General Motors, which was really awesome. Spent almost 10 years there. Wow. Uh, got a chance to work in their performance division, making V-Series Cadillacs and SS Chevrolets, and then awesome. eventually into the hybrid group on the other side, doing some of the first uh, lithium-ion batteries for, for volume production. Uh, chased a girl, didn't work out. Ended up at Tesla, as one does, for a couple of years. Did a uh, I was supposed to work in Fremont and ended up on the road uh, helping supply chain issues, hence the 150,000 air miles. Yep. The highest I got, by the way, was gold because we scattered it across six different uh, airlines. So I didn't um, even, it's not even like I ever got any upgrades. So, oh, that's painful. A couple of years at Tesla, um, worked for a cylinder control, uh, engine controls company doing cylinder deactivation, which is core software, really yeah. interesting technology. General Motors uses it in their full-size Silverados now. Uh, and then had the opportunity to design, operate, uh, and kind of maintain a, a electric motorcycle factory in the Bay Area for three and a half years. So Ooh. basically started with big factories and worked my way down to the little <laughs> ones uh, and everything in between. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. That's yeah. a that's a cool journey. So how how did Pico uh, come about? Um, what was the eureka moment you had that you said, "Gosh, uh, I've got this idea that could really affect the way that manufacturers operate." Yeah, I did not. I, I have never once and never intend to wake up one day and say I should start a business. That's not how it But you know. Uh, you know, I, my background is automotive, which is, you know, hundreds or thousands of components all have to show up with perfect quality at the exact same time, right? Yeah. And so no matter what we wanted to make at GM or Tesla or Alta, you, you can only produce the vehicle that you can buy the parts for, that you can get a supplier to produce, right? And you can do just about anything out there. But it, um, it always struck me as interesting where... Uh, you could have all this technology inside of a General Motors factory controlling, you know, a bunch of Kako tools or whatever it might be and conveyors and tools and robots and testing equipment, and vision systems. And then you go into the supply base and it's just like a, a very different exposure, especially when you get into tier two, tier three, tier four. So for those who may not be familiar, like each each company that supplies to the one above it, you know, maybe you have a extrusion 
they send it to a machine shop. The machine shop machines it into a particular form that goes into an assembly at a at a large company, and then it goes to the to the manufacturer of the vehicle at the end. You know, each one of those is considered a tier in yeah. the supply chain. And so, the farther you move away from the, the the massive OEM, the the more different the technology was. And I kind of got sick of having to either go out and travel like crazy and try to help suppliers. Uh, improve their operations or meet a quality or most often how to make a really terrible design (laughs) (laughs) until we could get a new design out. But, uh, you know, the the technology divide was pretty significant. And when we were at Alta Motors, we had, you know, had some theories about how our own factory, which was brand new and operated like a small factory, could could leverage technology in ways to be very successful. Uh, And we had a really solid uh, implementation there that we had created ourselves and really learned quite a bit. And when that company uh, got in bed with uh, another very large motorcycle manufacturer, then it did not work out, uh, oh. who has a track record of killing companies. Yeah. Uh, the, the choice was go work for another factory and use crappy software and hate it and be forever beholden to, you know, expecting perfection from the supply base with little implementation yeah. capability. Uh, and said, said, screw it. Let's, let's give this a shot and see if we can help. That's awesome. So, so how'd you yeah. find your, your co-founders? We were, we all worked together at Alta. Did you really? So, cool. Yeah. We came out of that. We'd run that factory for, yeah, from 2016 to 20, almost into 2018. Wow. Uh, produced thousands of motorcycles, just under a thousand, um, made all the batteries, had cells come in, packs go out. Wow. Yeah. That's Components came in motor controllers all done in-house. Yeah. So tell us now about Pico, right? Tell us about, uh, I mean, you're going to need to share with me and the audience (laughs) what is an MES system, because a lot of us, I think, have heard uh, of MES systems, but I don't know if a lot of us know exactly what they do. Um, So share a little bit about Pico, how many employees you have, um, you know, those kinds of fun details. Yeah, I'll start with what an MES is just to frame the conversation. So it stands for Manufacturing Execution System. Uh, if if you're curious on the academics behind it and you want to know more, uh, Google ISA, I-S-A-9-5. ISA-95 is like the classic definition of command the, the technology stack inside of a manufacturer. Okay. Um, the MES is the command and control layer. So there's a, a solution called the ERP, Inter- Enterprise Resource Planner, uh, that is like the ordering system is the way I like to view it, in inventory management. So it yeah. says, make these things. And then the MES is responsible for actually executing those orders and then having the source of truth for the data that comes back uh, and can feed it then to the ERP or wherever it needs to go. Sitting below it in a traditional stack, you have like a SCADA networks, which is S-C-A-D-A, but it's the machine-to-machine communications. You think about how robots talk to other robots in a body shop, for example. Uh, And then you have a a PLC layer. There's a HMI, human-machine interface layer that's kind of aggregating sensors and signals, which is the the very lowest level. Uh, So it's it's really just trying to describe the technology stack inside of a factory, but it's really designed for enterprise factories that might have 30 pieces of software that all come together to to produce their highly complicated products. Pico takes a, a little liberty with the term, and we basically <laughs> combine, you know, command and control all the way down. 
And the, the theory behind what we do is that integrating software is actually really hard. Yeah. And I believe that to be the case. And it's a limit for factories because they tend not to have large software engineering teams that can bring them all together, especially in the midsize or the supply base. Uh, and so in order to be able to take advantage of technology, you, you can't just have one point solution, right? Oh, cool. You hooked up a torque tool. Well, that's not as helpful if you can't you know, laser engrave a serial number to track that data against the part itself right. or to be able to hook up other types of tools or connect to machines or whatever it might be. So we formed Pico to be a platform of solutions. Okay. I have one kind of theoretical underlying uh, thesis that guides us, which is factories are filled with smart people. Don't treat them like stupid people, right? They're filled <laughs> with domain experts. Yeah, you don't get to be a hundred million dollars, you know, machine shop if you don't know how to machine parts, or injection molding, or assembly, or electronics, or whatever it is. But they're not software engineers, right? So Pico is actually a platform of solutions. We have worker guidance solutions. So there's work instruction generation and videos you can upload and layered content and you can treat experienced operators different than trainees and kind of guide people in a very unique way. But then on the other side of it, we connect to uh, hundreds of families of tools. Right. So we have the largest library in the assembly related space. So think scales and scan tools and camera systems and uh, measuring equipment like electrical testers or even calipers for physical world measurement. Sure. How can you allow a team in a factory who knows how the process should go to digitize it first of all and then integrate all these tools so that it has error proofing? data collection and all of the really great industry 4.0. I hate that word, by the way. We'll go. That's another tangent. Uh, but all of these oh, theoretical capabilities. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I just want our experts to be armed with, you know, the candy store, yeah. the engineer's candy store of solutions and not have to invent it themselves and sure as hell not have to write code. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a factory operations guy. I, I, one of my happy places on the plant floor. Uh, so how can we make people like that day a little bit better every yeah. day and then make their businesses viable so that the small towns that they sit inside of can also be viable? And yeah, maybe we'll, we'll all hate each other just a little bit less yeah. if we have more stable work that we're really proud of doing. I like so, it. I like that a lot. Yeah. So I, is that how you see an MES system like Pico? Uh, being able to affect the company culture uh, within manufacturing? It does. It does in subtle ways. Yeah. So you think about how a factory operates today, a small factory where you, know, you hire a new person, right? And what's their first day on the job look like? There's some paperwork in the morning and then it's, hey, go follow Bill around. <laughs> Bill's been doing the job you're going to be doing. Memorize what they do for three weeks. There's a binder of paper nobody's looked at in six months yeah. that it supposedly have the work instructions on it. Right. So if you need those for reference, but it's basically a, you know, do as I do and memorize this world. And then you're expected to just be perfect. Yeah. Well, that's one culture. That is a culture, right? It's People are culture. almost commodities yeah. in that world. Uh, which is sad. And instead, what I think we can do with Pico is you have to learn, you know, if you want to interact with a screen, for example, we have tablets or touch screens or industrial HMIs, yeah. all kinds of things that you can view it on. But how could you instead take somebody who's used to learning through YouTube or learning from their cell phone and give them an environment like that to learn the job, 
reduce the burden of that training dramatically. But then more importantly, even if they are an experienced person, uh, eliminate the vast majority of mistakes that can occur because most of them are like, I forgot to do something. It's not malicious. It's not, you know, I over torqued something and tried to break the head off of it. It's, you know, your boss walked up and was like, Hey, did you fill out your healthcare form? That's due next Friday. And you're like, I will do that at lunch. Sorry about that. And then you go back and you're, what was I doing? Where was I at? You know? Got it. So by integrating these tools, you, you can ensure you know five of five bolts are always shot. You can buy a $1,500 DC nut rudder now from multiple companies, right. integrate it through a controller. It all plugs and plays in our world, takes less than five minutes to set up. And now you can never forget the fifth faster. That's awesome. Right? Like you, you will not move forward without all five. It allows the operator now, their cognitive load is able to reduce into muscle memory because they're not worried about making a mistake. They don't have that anxiety level. And where the culture shift occurs is now, that's the best feedback mechanism on the planet. It's the person that does the work day in and day out. If you want to know how to do it one one minute faster and pick up 5% here and 2% there and 3% there, You need, you know, we unload that person's burden so that they can now help provide that feedback or if nothing else, just relax and have a better day. I love that. Go into your happy place. Uh, Think about what's for dinner instead of like, did I put that gasket in? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So I I, I don't know if I missed it right now. How many employees do you guys have at Pico? Yep. Apologies. Yeah. We have, we're up to 25 employees now. Awesome. Two thirds of our team is engineering, and uh, yeah, we've, we've grown over the years. We're four and a half years in at That's this point. Amazing! So, well done. Yeah. So, uh, where, where was uh, when when you and and your three co-founders started? And you know, feel free to give shout outs and name drop and all that kind of fun stuff for <laughs> whatever it's worth on this podcast, right? Um, but when you guys first started. What was the culture like there? Where is your culture now? And where do you think as you scale and grow this solution, where do you want to get your culture to? And and I ask that of all my guests, Ryan, but uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated about other industries, right? And, and you guys may be in the manufacturing industry, but you're a software company. So you're, you scale a little bit different. You, you move fast, you break things, right? To use that old term uh, of, you know, software. Um, you guys have a unique perspective, um, but your culture changes much faster and much more drastically than uh, a job shop that may be doing the same jobs, you know, 20 years ago as it is today and and probably will for the next 20 years. So talk to us about your cultural journey at, at Pico. Yeah, we, so Zach and Jeff are my two co-founders. One of them runs all of the integrations and customer support. The other one runs all of the core software. So we have like three technical co-founders. Okay. Uh, the, the company started with just three of us, which was really fun. We had some help from uh, friends on how to do the company and corporation <laughs> documents and all this fun stuff. But in, in order to fulfill our vision, we knew we had to have auxiliary capital help fund us. And so if you think about what we do, right, we have 150 families of, of integrated tools. Well, no one factory can sustain the, the financial burden of all that 
integration, right? We've spent sure. millions of dollars so far getting us there. So we have to amortize it across all of the factories over time. Well, in order to do that, you need a capital source outside of what you sell paying for you know what it costs to make it so we're venture capital backed uh, it's really the only way a company like ours can get there sure. uh, and so that has made you know an interesting culture cultural journey in its own rights Absolutely. and because of the the rules of vc and how they're funded but um, the other side of it is we were remote in at alta so jeff worked out of seattle and the factories were in northern california yeah uh, that we were running. So we had experience with remote. And when we formed Pico, we knew that this is pre-pandemic, right? <laughs> so this was different. <laughs> we wanted the recruiting advantage that it gave. And also, we were never going to all be in the same spot anyway, nor were all of our factors. Sure. You know, setting up a company in San Francisco for manufacturers, it, that's, I'll give you a clue. There's not a lot of manufacturing in, in the Bay Area that isn't startup related. Right. So, uh, it does exist, but there's way more in the Rust Belt and the you know the Southeast and everywhere in the United States, yeah. frankly. Um, and so we went remote first out of the gate. So you had three guys, you know, starting the company. It's relatively easy to get on conference calls, and everybody knew what they needed to do. And we were learning all about company formation and the venture world. So the first wow. year was, you know, we had, we deployed into our first factory four months into the company's. Wow, that's history. huge. So we. We've built a couple of these systems before in the past, had a very clear idea of where we wanted to go out of the gate and wanted to get it tested as fast as possible in a real world situation. Yeah. So uh, deployed at the end of April 2019 <laughs> into a machine shop in Michigan. Wow. Uh, and then we're working with their team on value creation and really refinement from there on. But the, so the company of the culture really started, or culture, the company's culture really started as, you know, people just kind of had tasks and checked in with each other. Yeah. Well, that doesn't scale. Right. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to hire a software engineer and be like, just do what you're supposed to do. We're going to so, 100% trust that you are going to do everything, <laughs> every minute of the day that you're supposed to. That's right. Yeah. Just again, never be, it's like operators, just be perfect Absolutely. all day long. Yep. No support, but go ahead and be perfect. Well, we, um, so we started with hiring people who, uh, who, who we knew could handle the role that we were at. So think more experienced uh, levels yep. inside of the company and inside of the individual roles. And then I think one of the interesting pieces we've bumped into has been how we've structured our leadership team. Uh, we have a, a fairly broad team. There's I think eight or nine. That, yeah. I should probably know that off the top of my head, but <laughs> minor <laughs> individual <detail>. voices. <laughs> And it's because we want the user experience to be at the same level as the device integrations and at the same level of importance as the data that's collected and all of these core elements yes. of Pico, along with sales and marketing and you know finance. So uh, as the you know when we built out that leadership team, that was kind of the next phase was bringing in these really talented individuals that uh, could run each portion of the the company. Yeah. And then I hope that we figure out the next phase, which is at some point we'd like to be able to hire, uh, for lack of a better term, more junior um, roles. But, you know, one of the things with a remote team is mentorship is actually quite tough. Yeah. Uh, being able to help someone who maybe hasn't done that job before or is new to that role, that's a harder thing for us to do when we're not all in one place yeah. you know, together where questions are simple and easy. And, you know, there's a lot of software that makes it better, but it doesn't make it perfect. Right. So it's one of the trade-offs of being remote. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Adventure has its own world. Yeah, that brings into it. Tell us, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the addition of venture capital into this, uh, and and what that brings culturally. Yeah, so I would never recommend anybody to form a company. I think it's suicide mission for your brain and your well-being. But yeah, uh, venture is great in many ways, and you just have to recognize what you're getting into. Sure. So uh, if you think about think of how crazy it is that venture capital even exists. Oh, right? It's absolutely. a small yeah. small chunk of the funding world, but it's got, it gets a lot of press. But Basically, somebody says, okay, I'm going to cut you a check in seven to 10 years from now, maybe I will get a return on it. And I have to deliver a higher rate of return than the stock market, which is known, or real estate or T-bill, yeah. you know, treasury bills or whatever it might be. So they have to have a very high uh, rate of return. And yet they, they don't know if the bet they're going to make is going to pay out for years. And oh, by the way, nine out of 10 will never hit that home run that they need. There's a whole lot of information on it, but it's called power law math, basically. And so venture can really only bet on really big things and it needs to grow at a reasonable pace. So there's, there's like slightly different requirements for a company that's funded that way. But in exchange, you have an artificial access to capital, right? You get more, more funding up front if you're able to hit certain milestones. And then they have this, really amazing network of support when it comes to hiring technical support like uh, mentorship for you know first-time founders like myself and others uh and so it's a really amazing experience when you get into once you've kind of gotten into that groove of just kind of what it's like to run a company for the first time and actually have some help think about like the shops that i would go into at tesla uh our supply base was was new i mean it was electric vehicles in 2011 (laughs) there wasn't a whole lot of them being made at that time (laughs) right i remember every press release was like oh general motors did the vault and ford's doing whatever on the escape and they just ignored tesla who was like the one that had you know all this capability absolutely but um you know, that shop has to make a profit yeah. quickly, right? Like you start off with a machine shop, you have to, you know, to pay back the loans on the equipment yeah. you have to meet, you know, you have to meet those payments. Well, our world, we won't make a profit for, for years. And it's expected. It's the way that, that's the, that's, that is the goal, right. not the goal, but the, the structure that we live within. Because again, to pay for all of this really, like, think about how, um, our software allows you to seamlessly connect all of these tools and you have this integrated you know, PowerPoint on steroids for lack of better yeah. terms for the work instructions. And there's a workflow chart where you just drag and drop all of your processes around. So in minutes, you can go from paper and pencil and have this, this digital you know, process with connected tools and side of a workflow in place. Well, that takes millions of dollars to go create nice. uh, inside of there. So you, you know, we have to uh, invest much, much more upfront versus a shop that's trying to be profitable right out of the yeah. gate. And, you know, I'm sure there'd be a lot of shops that would start up and have, you know, 50 machines of five axis, three axis blades and all the other stuff or assembly shops or whatever it might be if that type of funding existed in their yeah. world. But it's much harder to come. Absolutely. So absolutely. Yeah, tech is different. So, so we are t- we are software as a service, uh, you know, sitting inside of the manufacturing I love industry. It. It's quite the dichotomy. I love it. So <laughs> I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, you know, that 
your clients, your customers can be up and running with this solution in minutes. Um, one of the things that I hear so often is how painful ERP system implementation is and, and some yeah. of these other softwares that, that these manufacturers are, are uh, implementing within their shops. Sounds like that's not necessarily the case with Pico and MES systems, or is this specific to Pico uh, and and something that you guys offer as you know a differentiator? It's believe me, MES deployments are as painful or more painful than ERPs in the past. No so, okay. yeah, the if you can think about what we call legacy solutions, the players that have been around for five, ten, fifteen yeah. years, they're all still weeks or months of of working with consultants. Uh, you know, the the if anyone listening here is thinking about an you know a factory operation system or an MES or whatever it might be, one of those the sniff tests is. How much do I pay for the software versus the services required to configure, manage, consultants, you know, all of the things on the other yeah. side? Because frankly, how good is your software if it requires all of that? There's a difference between a guide, yeah. you, know, you know, like a Sherpa who would take you up the Himalayan mountains, right? <laughs> the, a guide is one thing, a partner where maybe you're not sure what software tech stack you need or how to optimize your factory and you need that help that's one right. thing but the people that are like if the software requires you to talk to somebody else to hard code in how to route you know oh this part's going to travel through the product like yeah. this i think that's a deficiency in the software itself sure. it just wasn't built correctly uh some of that comes down to when it was made yeah. so yeah. i think for us the the pain that, that you you mentioned for erps erps can be painful because often you have to get them completely set up before you can turn them on that's step one, right? So you have to build all of your accounting rules and inventory policies and how POs are, are issued and what a sales order turns into a manufacturing order into individual work yep. orders and bombs have to be created or implemented, integrated. Yeah. There's a lot of those items. And how we flip that is we focus on the elements that underpin a factory and we allow you to build from the elements up instead of this top down, like massive hierarchy, the other direction. Okay. And it's, it's a paradigm shift, yeah. uh, you know, and it's what we're betting on is the right answer. But how we set up a station in one day, for example, is you don't, I don't need your bill of materials. You know, what is a bill of materials for in the factory, right? It's one of two things. It's to document what was made. These parts went into this thing. Yeah. Or more commonly, it's to tell an operator, grab this part, not that part. Make sure this is the one that went into it. So we have a system there for each process. You can tell the operator those parts without having to have it integrated from your source of truth. Now, long-term, do we integrate with that source of truth? Absolutely, because you don't want to do that manually Absolutely. forever. But you can get up and running and test the system that day with it. Wow. Same thing, our IoT network plugs and plays so that you can test those tools that day. Okay. And it allows you to... to not only build value quicker yeah. so you can pay for the deployment through operational savings, but also you now are, are learning in kind of bringing in more advanced capabilities one step at a time instead of shooting for the moon. Yeah. Oh. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't think zero to one transformations occur. Yeah. I actually believe very much in if you want to gain 30% efficiency, which I would argue every factory who's a mid-sized factory and not already digitally transformed can gain, you're going to get it one, two, three, four percent at a time. Wow. And you are already losing it. You know, you're just stopping the losses because most factories don't actually have a great understanding of 
you know, why did I make 65 parts today, 70 yesterday, 55 the day before? Like, why am I not getting 70 every day? Or, you know, why, how, how much time did I spend repairing this versus actually building all the way through? And how could I have stopped sure. that? Like, all of these little things add up over and over and over. So, what we've built is a platform that allows you to go after them incrementally. Yeah one step at a time and you can we have one company deploy it you know, there are 200 stations in five months wow. <laughs> like extremely fast rollout because they're in the fast charging space and you know they were able to beat their competition to market and capture some of the ira okay that was that's awesome uh you've got other factories that are just slow and incremental and add a couple of stations every month and they're very planned and methodical rollout yeah. but it gave them the choice instead of like that ERP rollout you mentioned where it's okay, the cutover date is September 1st, right? you're lining up all this world, you're going to turn it over to the other side. Like that's, that's very challenging to do. So uh, we just, I mean, I have yeah. it, right? I don't want to do it anymore. So let's, let's talk a little yeah. bit about change management. I mean, whether it's implementing something like an MES, right. You And, and maybe even with some of the, the, companies you've worked with, what are some change management strategies? I mean, it, again, it could be implementing MES, it could be uh, improving retention, it could be, you know, any litany of things, but the small to medium-sized manufacturers aren't necessarily built to be able to handle change management, right? They're, they're built to, right. hey, here's this product or this family of products that we have built historically as a tier two or tier three supplier for X number of years. Um, and, and change isn't really in their, their verbiage. How do you guys approach change management when you're, when you're talking with, with clients and prospective clients? Yeah, there's a, I mean, arguably in manufacturing, there's a value to stability. Absolutely. So most, most facilities, we just don't mess with it, can actually have pretty significant gains by people getting into a groove if they do the same thing over and over. The high mix environments, you're kind of screwed <laughs> for that. But the, there's a different version of how that works and it tends to be how flow, how, how work flows yeah. through the factory. But um, I think that the, the key that we've always focused on for change management is, you, there has to be a champion, first of all. There's got to be somebody who wants to see this go okay. through, and they need to be empowered in some form, right? If the, you know, the the person who just started at the company is the the, the advocate, they might not have the sway necessary to to get budget or to bring people yeah. along. But arming that champion then with a path to follow uh, is key, so they can set the vision for other people okay. on where they want to go. Um, but then, really, it's about business value and quick wins. Uh, and they come in different ways. So the business needs everything that's being worked on to, to gain in value. Like I mentioned, go find 1% a day or 1% a week or whatever, depending on the, the yeah. factory structure that is available so that there is value. You know, the machine shop we started with in, in Michigan doubled the profit margin of a part they'd been making for eight wow. years. Same thing they've been making. So had eight years of their continuous refinement, but it's a commodity in the automotive industry. Right. So if you, you know, then automotive is notorious for beating you down on right. price. So they would make a net profit of six to 10% on that good. And that was, you know, after they paid for the people and the equipment. Um, and we were able to double that simply by picking up, we picked up almost 25% increase in output per unit time. So the same equipment, 
same people produced 25 percent wow. more well if you look at that it, they were they, they were trying to make as much as they could they were they were supply constrained yeah. you know if they could make more they would make more well all of that profit came back on you know that that's just free profit yeah. right you pay the material cost but uh on the other side. And so that was the business value that, that the project was associated with. Uh, but the other side of it is those quick wins. So how do you get the operators been doing the same thing for 20 years to be like, well, you know, put a screen in front of me. You're going to track me. You're a big brother. I'm not a robot. Like all the things I hate, it just, it, it, it drives me insane when people just treat operators as a commodity. But uh, the, the, the quick win in that situation was they have a, a bonus that's paid in the shop based on output you know if they if they hit their targets over and over again they get a bonus and i think that's a really great strategy right it's like profit sharing and the white collar work um but the targets were just total garbage right like i walked in and was like has anybody ever hit that target and he's like only if we work through break and all this stuff well what, what had happened was they added a quality check inside the machine a, a laser checker for a, a drill bit uh, potentially getting broken because oh, they had a problem. Okay. So they added a change and they didn't update the target. Uh, and so we walked in and the quick win in that scenario was just tying what the operator did to the proof that they could hit the target. So the targets came right. down, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, they went back up later as they improved yeah. the process, but it made it real. You know, for the operators, I think to me, it's, you know, change management is really important because they do 80% yeah. of the work, right? Yeah, the engineers might be driving it or the, the executives, but it's it's about making their day better, not worse. Don't give them more to do. Give them, you know, less yeah. to do. I talked about tool integrations and error proofing and anxiety down. But also, don't treat them like right. a robot. Yes, they have to perform tasks over and over again, but they also have a brain that can help improve yeah. things. Or... You know that allows them to just you know check out and go into their happy place for the day and be left alone. Some people like that, and then the other side that comes out of it is you know no one likes to carry a weak team member uh, and being able yeah. to like say like look at the data. You know, can you help train that person or whatever is necessary to be able to not have to carry yeah. that person's burden? Uh, these are all examples. So I come back to quick wins because they happen yeah. at every level. I like that. So the engineers get a quick win because they can hook up a tool they've been wanting to hook up with yeah. forever, you know, something that they knew would value them. And the executives, without spending a lot of money, um, now all of a sudden can see value on the other side and go, okay, our strategy can operate differently with a tool like this. Um, and then from there, it, it's a subtle thing. You don't walk into the factory like, I'm going to change your <laughs> culture. You come back a year later and you go, wow, your culture has yeah, really changed. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like, it's how it functions. I like that. So yeah, it's it's an interesting journey, and it's 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 captivating. It's the Lay's potato chip yeah. model, right? Like once you operate with data for the first time, and you're not guessing, like it's you addictive. just can't eat one. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's right. You can't eat one, right? I guess I'm dating myself with that hey, reference. I got it. I don't know how many people are going to get it, but I got it. Um, and celebrating wins is such a vital part of a good culture, right? And and fostering a, a, a place where employees are engaged and, and giving that discretionary effort. So if you're able to to have quick wins um, and and have something to celebrate, that's a big deal. 
Ryan, let's let's. Oh, go you know, ahead. the other the other side of that too is I say you always want to celebrate the quick wins, but you're always trying not to hide the Absolutely. mistakes. And think about a factory world where you know you don't have a yeah. tool. Like the only way to like, oh, you know, forgot to you know go back to my fastener example, or like you didn't install the gasket right. All that operator knows is they're going to yeah. get yelled at for not having done that correctly. So that's not in their interest to, to highlight, hey, that one's wrong or this is bad. But when there's a culture in there of the ability to actually help, yeah. you know, you're not going to go out and buy every tool every day because, you know, oh, you could theoretically stop that from ever happening again. But if it happens once and you all look at it and go, okay, yeah, no, I can, I, that was just me. I got it. No problem. Maybe update this image or, yeah. you know, add a little checkbox to make sure I don't forget to do something. But they can also look at it and go, it's really hard for me to dispense this amount of grease perfectly. Can we have a scale so I can weigh it before and after? And now I know, you know, or when we have a new, this station has 20 people rotated, rotated through it every day for ergonomics or because it's, you know, new to the company or whatever it might be, then you can deploy that tool. Well, all of a sudden the mistakes become highlighted, right? And it's, the goal is to only make right. them once. Like I make a mistake every day. I promise you. Ask my <laughs> wife. <laughs> every day I make a mistake. So, but I try very, very hard not to make the same mistake yeah. twice. Uh, and that's the other side of the culture shift is not only can you celebrate the wins, but you can actually highlight the, the issues so that you can fix them. Yeah. Uh, and then you get a world-class organization yeah. on the other I, side. And the hard part at manufacturing is just getting somebody to say they actually want a world organization and know what that looks like. Right. Um, Even if they don't know what it looks like, have it, have an idea of the path to figure it out. Right. Like you just have to say, I want to get a little bit better today. Period. Yep. Right. That's that's one of the things I talk with clients with all the time is uh, create an environment where people want to try new things and they're not afraid of failing because everybody's going to fail to your point, right? I fail daily. I talk to my kids, my wife knows it. Um, (laughs) But I don't fear failure because to your point, again, I learn from those mistakes. So I have a, a fail fast uh, mentality, right? And, And learning from those mistakes in a factory, <clears throat> machine shop, whatever you want to call it, it's a little bit tougher because if you failed, there could be scrap, right? Um, or it could get out of the factory, which is exactly. even scarier, right? It could get to and, a customer. If it's so. an aircraft part, that leaving the factory is even that that affects more than just one group of customers, right? That that affects a, an entire population. So how can manufacturers encourage failure or encourage the ability to fail while not affecting production, right? And not affecting the products that could potentially then leave. Yeah. I mean, in, in my background, like I never attempt to fail. You never want to encourage failure, but you want to encourage iteration and, and the consequence of iteration can sometimes be an issue or a failure, but it's all about guardrails. Um, and just, you know, again, if you can bring, one of the things we've focused on so much at Pico is bringing the cost down. I think we're the only platform on the planet whose goal is to lower <laughs> our price over time instead of increase it. But the the reason is, is you got to get, I don't want dollars to be in the way of 
of improving uh, as much as we can, right? We have, we're a business, we have to make money, we have investors that we need to pay back on, but we also have advantages that allow that to not require the burden to come yeah. from one shop. Um, and so for me, it's about, you know, if you think about how a factory can have that type of cultural shift, they need to have either an experimentation area or guardrails on the production process. Often it's, you know, if you trust your end of line testers, which is a key gatekeeper in a lot of the assembly shops, uh, then you can test up front, you know, hey, let's try, you know, route the harness this way. And do we you know, train these different people? Do we get any pinches yeah. on the other side? But if you don't trust your, if you don't have that guardrail, then you need to implement a guardrail or create an environment off to the side where you can test. What we are almost always iterating on are things that are not at risk to the product. Right. You never, ever, ever want to risk right. that product. We're iterating on how we communicate, how you know tools integrations eliminates risk, and then that allows processes to be right. changed. Right. So if I could do it more efficient by performing this third of the work at that station and, and moving it around so I didn't have a bottleneck, well, you can only do that if you have you know checks in place to make sure that 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 isn't missed or it's performed correctly, depending on what yeah. the action is. Uh, and that's honestly the power of the the ability to integrate tools is things are not expensive now that that require integration right i can get a 50 dollars camera to just snap a picture of the thing before it goes in the box and you know if it gets a scratch from the customer i can say fedex did it because here's the picture right if i need it to be smart enough to find that defect beforehand okay now you're into the thousands of dollars instead of tens of dollars, but it's not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you can put them into a situation as long as you control lighting and focal, uh, that it will find that defect before it leaves. And now you have yeah. a guardrail, right? So you can move things around without having to worry about it. The key, I think that if companies want to be successful uh, long-term, right? And especially in the automotive industry where there's such price, price pressure, and now we're in the middle of this giant transition where all of the R&D money is going into electric vehicles, yet all of the volume is still Absolutely. producing gas and diesel. So you have you have these this kind of very different structure where the, the supply base is being told they need to gear up for EV related items, but yet still produce all of these other things. That's, you know, it requires, I think a company has to have a culture that allows them sure. to change, to iterate. It doesn't have to be daily and it doesn't have to be scary. But if you can't, connect to tools. If you can't add serialization, which is one of the, like the core tenets of data collection, the ability to say this came from that part, right? Because if you don't have the ability to hook up a printer that has a serial number tag or a laser engraver, right. Right? Like, then it gets scary. It gets hard to iterate because you don't have that infrastructure. But for us, like I don't, I don't sell tools. I can tell you whose who's laser engraver is worth a shit. News isn't right. Like I don't. It, I just want you to, you know, implement the tools that make that factory yeah. more successful, so that you know the my kids t-ball league has somebody else to play because that's who <laughs> sponsors the t-ball league, right? Is the local right. factory. So um, anyway, so the, uh, that's how I I hope people tell us it. a little bit about the that the digital divide and and that term of digital divide. What is it? Um, and how does it affect uh, a small to medium size or even large uh, manufacturers uh, company, its culture and engagement levels? Yeah, the um, there's a there's a big divide when you think about what I'll call the Fortune 500 or the enterprise world. So there's there's about 2,500 shops in the U.S. that produce about 40 percent of manufacturing right. output. 
2.4 billion ish uh, wow. trillion sorry 2.4 yeah. trillion with a t in output in goods um, these folks almost all have a solution right they they are the ones pioneering the i'll go back to the buzzwords but the industry 4.0 technology the ones that really invested 10 years ago five years ago yeah. for some um, so about 80 percent of them are covered now with a solution and they're focused on rolling it out so they have picked something that runs their they did the erp first and now they're into the mes uh, and so for them, their culture is about, okay, yeah, this is kind of a crappy solution, frankly, made by somebody that we spend way too much money for. And we're going to tell the world it's the greatest thing. And we'll pay McKenzie $2 million to get us certified as a lighthouse right. factory or whatever <laughs> bullshit that they're putting out. But it's it's a legacy solution. It's slow. It's inflexible. It's difficult to use. And it's incredibly expensive. But it's funny. I just you know trashed that thing. I would never tell them to go to Pico. It's funny, really? as weird as it is to say, I think they could just consider it. But for a factory, for a company that's got, you know, 50 locations, having the same crappy solution in every spot is actually way more important than having an ideal one in a fraction okay. of them. So because then you can look at your organization as a holistic yeah. view and run things like machine learning can now run on a, on a properly configured data set and they can gain in new ways because yeah. they're all connected. And then, you know, yes, they should consider new technology like Pico on how they can then roll that out in conjunction with it and slowly replace what's bad or whatever that might be. But yeah. it's a different culture. Um, when you go down to the next level of factory, what's called the upper mid or lower enterprise, this is the people buying technology today. This is really where the meat of the market is. They make 500 million a year to 2 billion a year, maybe five factories, uh, something like that. Yeah, some are sure. bigger, some are smaller, but it's in that segment. And they've got enough uh, kind of reference cases now, and they're using a different, you know, a five-year-old technology instead of a 10-year-old that they can bring in. So it's maybe $150,000 a year instead yeah. of a million dollars, right? <laughs> Again, I'll come back to the consultant side. But in those worlds, that's where they, uh, they're kind of digitizing now, and they're kind of pioneering more of the the data connections and how to do things quicker and faster. Where the divide is, is when you go one low level below. So in that world, only 30, 40% have digitized. So yeah. There's still a big divide sitting inside of it, but it's at least most recognized they need to. One level down, they're going, all those solutions suck. They're too expensive. I, don't, I can't afford them. Go away. And so they're kind of stuck with, do I take this MES module or factory operations module, my ERP, has in it and try to roll that out? Do I make my own thing or do I do nothing? And that's actually the world we are targeting where we say, hey, we, we'll plug right in yeah. with your ERP. They, you know, Almost every ERP has APIs because they're used to having some other system they right. need to plug into. Not all, but most of them. And the the problem is, is you know, ERPs are fundamentally accounting yeah. software. Like, they, yes, they do lots <laughs> of other things. I don't want to piss anybody off who loves their ERP, but like, the, at the end of the day, they're there to transact material is what their their kind of core kernel of operations right. are for. Well, that's different than the factory. The factory is about executing a series of events that need to happen in some logical sequence over time with perfect capability and then collect whatever the data required to say that you did it is, did it perfectly for your customers, right? So like it's a different fundamentals. And what works really well is when you buy the right technology for the thing you're yeah. actually trying to achieve. So... I I think 
having the ERP with an MES module is better than nothing, but it's a it's going to cost you a lot of money. They still require consultants, and it's never going to be yeah. what you really like. Um, Pico is a potential solution. Fine, hey, great. If it works for you, awesome. But if it doesn't, and there's a better one out there, go get it. Because where I see really occurring is, and I'm going to switch back. I know I went no, on a big, I, long I, journey, so I, now dude, we're going to talk about why the, I have yeah. this podcast because <laughs> I love hearing these things. <laughs> You got General Motors up here who's like, I have data on everything. I am inundated with data. I need artificial intelligence to help me comb my data. And then they're like, cool. Okay, well, my entire factory is dependent on 1,500 suppliers shipping parts with perfect quality to me yep. every day. So my, I, I only control a small fraction of my world, right? Like All those parts getting there is most important. So they go... Hey, how do we make sure we always have the parts? Because for the last three years, we've had to tell our shareholders that we didn't produce enough vehicles because we couldn't get insert chips, foam for insulation, wire harnesses because of connectors, blah, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. How long before they go? You know, they don't even view this world of the supply base as not being digitized. Their entire world is. And then you go down to the supply base and they're going to somehow magically accept that it's you know, they can't have data to, to confirm that the parts are of high quality and are going to ship right. on time with the right volume. That's where the divide is starting to really okay. cross. And if you want to supply in the automotive industry, they have audit rights to the data already. They have to, right? Recalls are incredibly yep. expensive. They have to know that the parts are going to get there. So they have what's called a production part approval process, but it basically validates your capacity yep. and how you make things. Um, the quality that you implement, well, that now goes down to the critical tiers, right? So if they don't see what they like, they cannot risk 3,000 people twiddling their thumbs because you are the company that didn't supply the part to them that they needed. Well, right now, I guess most of the automotive industry is about to twiddle their thumbs because of yeah. the UAW strike that's going. But um, and aerospace is similar; it's just more regimented, and it's you know it has more regulation yeah. on top of it. Uh, and then you get into heavy and heavy heavy vehicles and commercial equipment, which have similar requirements because you know John Deere still still hurts when John Deere gets shut down, right? Yeah. Or whatever equivalent. So that's where the divide is to me is really starting to manifest is you're going to see the OEMs are just going to say, if you want to be a supplier to me, you, you have to Got do it. this period here. This is, this is the requirement Got and it. it'll be a push instead of a pull. So we already are seeing so that now. As, as companies are looking to attract Gen Z employees, Gen Y or millennial employees, what are what are some things from a cultural perspective that uh, they should be looking to focus on metrics wise uh, to attract and retain this next generation, which is much more digitally focused, right? Um, and and how can MES systems uh, help manufacturers track those? specific metrics, right? I hope that made sense. Um, okay. It does. Yeah. I th no, it's a huge issue. It's hilarious. I mean, everything in your, in your life is digitized and then you walk into a factory, set your phone down and pick up a clipboard, right? right? Like that is totally backwards in a lot of the, the world. And I, there's a huge, um, skills gap in machinery or, uh, em employment, you know, fulfillment problem in manufacturing. There's like 2 million open jobs and it's only going to get worse. And then when you look at certain skills, it's it's even scarier. 
But I would argue, especially on like, for instance, the labor, just core labor that is an issue. You know, most of the factories that have a problem hiring and retaining uh, talent is likely the issue of that factory. And I know it hurts to hear that, but you're going to need to look in the mirror and ask why is it that somebody would rather work at Taco Bell for 15 bucks an hour than come into here for 17 bucks an hour? You know, uh, it's it is a it it makes total sense when you look at what that person has to do all day. I'll come back to like follow Bill around for three weeks and then be perfect when you know videos are accessible at any moment on their phone. And when you want to learn how to do something at home, you go straight to YouTube and you watch somebody else yeah. go through it, or you have, you know, your phone connects into your car and you know your doorbell on your house and all these other things. And then somebody's saying like, you can't connect to the <laughs> torque tool, like to tell right. it what to do. Like it, it's, it's a divide that exists in here that I think is a huge problem because it, it also, manufacturing has a reputation that just frankly isn't real anymore. 20 years ago, it was dark, yeah. dangerous, dirty, right? Uh, now it's, it's freaking awesome. I mean, I built, I started my career building, you know, stupid fast cars that went around tracks at high speed and still make hot rods awesome. with friends of mine that are just amazing. SEMA cars, caliber, you know, uh, 69 Camaros, oh. for example. But, uh, how do you get a car, person who loves mechanical things in that nature all of a sudden go to manufacturing, right? If it's dark, dangerous, dirty, that's where all the robots are being pioneered. It's where automation systems are in place, but also things that guide people and allow us to connect tools. It's just really, really awesome because unlike the other side of industry, you, uh, you don't have to wait three years to see the car right. that you've been designing come to fruition, right? I can make a change yeah. in three days in a factory and really improve something. The feedback loop is faster. And, you know, each generation has been trained. I'm 43 years old. So I, you know, first users of cell phones and then, you know, into the, I had my first email when I was at, yeah. at the end of high school. Uh, so our feedback loop is, I always say it's based on the time between commercials Absolutely. on TV shows, yeah. you know, back in the day. We're, well, that's getting, shorter and shorter because you know you're all the way down to tiktoks that are you know less than a minute at least used to be before well, they extended it. tiktoks are so as the, long as the commercial breaks used to be back when you know when, when you'd have to, yeah when, when you'd seconds. have to run to brush your teeth so that you could be back in time to watch the next <laughs> segment of the cosby show or family and ties or family matters or whatever show it was sorry i digress yeah, yeah. no but the so then you go, like, to me, I think a huge piece of this is if you want to enable the next generation, because frankly, yeah. you don't have a choice. So you can complain about how I can't find anybody and the skilled trades are hard to solve and all of these other things. But you also have to give a work environment that people want to be inside of uh, and then go after the ones that are hard. So basically, yeah, if you need a CNC programmer where I live in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, you, you that's yeah. going to be a hard hire. So how about taking the burden off the rest of the hiring teams? They don't have to deal with the laborers or whatever it is, right? Like focus your attention on the things that are really hard by trying to eliminate the noise of everything else. Uh, a big chunk of that is having technology in the facility that gives somebody a reason to want to come to it and, yeah. and showing it. Don't hide it. That's the other yeah. thing. We're, manufacturers are so afraid to often talk about what they do for intellectual property reasons or whatever it might be. They don't want to show videos of their operations on the website because maybe they're you know they feel like the machinery is older than it should be or whatever it is i i don't think that really actually is the case people <laughs> to break it to you like 90 percent of the factories have very little digital digitization inside of them 
uh, and the more we talk about it and show how we are pioneering these things and where you want to go, the more I think you can bring those generations in. And then the metrics at which you want to um, implement throughout the factory can then now not only be like business value driven metrics like we talked about earlier, but also you can start implementing other metrics for them on maybe it's how long it took to do a project or um, you know, how many times they iterated on something before they got it to the finish line. There's, there, you just, it just gives you a chance to do it different um, and iterate and improve and learn where if you know it's still clipboard time and uh, ERP plus clipboard and maybe yeah. some standalone machines, there's only so much you can do for iteration in that world, uh, you know, or to track somebody into there when you're like, oh yeah, like that pneumatic tool, we've had it for 20 years. Yeah, you could 1500 bucks. Oh, how much does this line make? $30 million a month worth of, of, of revenue come off this line and you won't implement a, or even $3 million a year off that line and you won't implement a $3,000 tool. Like people, young people are very smart and they're not going to accept that. So I don't know. I, the other side of it that I always say is I'm 43. How about you ask a 25-year-old what it is that they want and yeah. bring them into the conversation uh, and see what it is that is holding them back. Why don't yeah. their friends want to work there? Yeah, I guarantee you somebody's got a kid in, in that facility Absolutely. that can get that feedback. Um, and let people you know, feel empowered. Empowerment is such an amazing yeah. cultural change um, tool. And you don't have to just let people run wild, right? But you can be empowered in ways that I think are small in, in somebody who's been doing yeah. it for 30 years, mind, but very big to awesome. maybe a new hire uh, or, or a yeah. candidate you're talking to. Uh, so, I mean, Ryan, <laughs> you've given us so much information, so many things to think about. Um, typically, as I wrap up episodes, I ask for three things that people have done internally that have changed their culture. Um, I want to ask you that question, but I also want to say if you don't have three things because you're relatively newer, right? Uh, what are three things that, that you think your clients or, or manufacturers in general could do uh, outside, or it could be inclusive of the things they've already shared with us, right? I mean, you've t- we've talked about empowering, uh, giving the f- ability to fail. Uh, we've talked about innovation. We've talked about all these things. Uh, are there three things that you've done internally or, or d- things that you want to talk about that uh, manufacturers could implement to change their culture? I mean, I'm... Oh, I'm going to be that guy that answers Do it, Do it man. <laughs> well, so for us internally, like, well, I think three things I'm really proud of are our flat. We talked about our flat leadership level. I actually think that's a really interesting experiment. I could be totally wrong. It might totally fail, but it has an opportunity to be different. Um, and it's yeah. working right now. The second thing that we do is if you're going to be remote, we, we recognize it and be remote. So we take the cost of what it would what it would cost us to have 25 people today anyway in uh, offices in the companies founded out of. Uh, And instead of spending it on that because we're remote, we spend it on our people. So we give, for example, $3,000 per employee every two years for their home setup. I don't care if you buy plants and rugs because that's what you need or a fancy coffee maker or whatever. It's the same thing as if we were furnishing the office, but now it allows their world to be a little less crappy, right? As they're doing their job. (laughs) So, uh, and then the third thing 
for for a lot of that is just collaboration tools but i think you we can talk about that on another day if you want but like how you use slack open communication don't hide anything but also allow people to know this is what you're supposed to be doing um, and when we expect it to be done because then people have something to work against uh, and that's something we're constantly working on yeah. but the other side of it for the customer side of the house for factories in general like i didn't form this company to talk about how we're running it. I mean, it's a, it's a byproduct, but like what I really care about is the impact on these smaller factories. Sure. And I would ask him just to say, A, um, the, the big things that you can do are establish some way to continuously improve. If you think the status quo, if your goal is to like eliminate all the errors just so that the base way of doing it can be done more, it's admirable, but then you need some improvement process that allows you to eliminate those errors. I would argue the better way to do it is to think about how you could make more and more and more of them and then eliminate the errors at the same time. But uh, that that culture of continuous improvement from a champion at the top, some leader, if it's not going to be you, owner, because you're thinking about you know a bunch of other business things, then empower the the operations team leader or whoever it is or a really great you know, engineer or younger person that can run some form of continuous improvement activity. Yep. And then the second strong piece of advice, if especially if you want the culture to sh- to to improve, is what are the elements you need in place? You know, do you need the ability to connect to tools? Well, I don't know what job you do or what work it is. If it's all right. machine based, it looks very different than if it's people based. But right. there are fundamental elements if you look just below the surface and say, okay, well to do anything we want to do, we need to be able to like log this or we need some way to connect to tools or people or guide them or whatever it might be. And those elements, that's the roadmap that you're trying to, you know, carve off 1% of total revenue or whatever to invest in things like that, because you know, it'll pay back, but you might not have the direct business value. Yeah. And then that's for the third one, which is anything that you do from a company project perspective, tied to business value will always be more successful. When finance says you should do it, it makes life a lot easier for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love Um, it. Those are great. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Uh, Well, Ryan... Just do something. Don't sit static. Right. Static is... Yeah. I I always tell people uh, on the consulting side, I hear uh, that's the way it's always been done every day. Um, and to me, that is on one hand, the most dangerous words in business, right? Uh, to hear, uh, multiple people within one facility say, well, it's just the way it's always been done, but it also signifies the most opportunity for growth. Right. And, uh, there's, a, a huge, opportunity, not only to grow their processes, but to grow their culture into one that then recognizes and celebrates, right? Don't stay stagnant. Don't, uh, don't be afraid of change. Um, and, you just ask why, Yeah. if you've been doing it that way forever. Okay. Why? There's probably good reasons why it's been that way forever, but you should at least be able to answer that. Exactly. That's all. If you can answer it as why that this is the way it's been and why it should be that way. Great. Cool. But, Let's keep going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Ryan, that was great. I, I, uh, as we were talking, uh, I think episode number two will be, uh, Ryan's issue with industry 4.0. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> you better hang on to that one. There's a lot of cussing involved in that. All right. So that one will earn the explicit uh, tag, um, but also uh, some communication tools, uh, things of that nature, right? Talking more about that digital uh, solution, uh, maybe not that Picos uh, provides, but in the industry itself and, and talk about some of the digital. So stay tuned everybody for episode two with Ryan. Uh, not sure when that's going to happen, but we'll make it happen here shortly. Ryan, thank you very much. Appreciate you being on uh, a great conversation. Uh, can't thank you enough. Yeah, Jim, totally a pleasure for today. This is really fun and definitely look forward to number two and happy to help. We can talk about all the things we use internally too that we buy awesome. from other vendors. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> all right. So folks, that was uh, an awesome episode. We not only traversed 1,500 or 150,000 miles uh, via air flight with, with Ryan on six different airlines, which hurt me internally so much when you said that because it's one thing to rack up all those miles and get the points and the benefits of upgrades and all that but to do it over six airlines that just it broke something inside me uh we we've traveled and journeyed with the ins and outs of pico mes uh we've we've gotten a glimpse at how technology is really shaping and improving culture within the manufacturing industry um if this episode uh, didn't get you thinking about the future of manufacturing in a whole new light, uh, I don't know what will, quite frankly. So for all the key details, takeaways, and to catch up on any past episodes you may have missed, make sure to visit manufacturingculturepodcast.com. You'll find everything that you need to keep yourself inspired and up to date and moving culture in the manufacturing industry forward. Uh, Folks, I've got a, something to ask you. If today's episode struck a chord with you, um, and how could it not, uh, do us a solid favor and share it with your friends, colleagues, your grandma, anyone who's passionate about transforming the manufacturing landscape. Uh, don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. Uh, that not only helps us bring more content like this show, this episode uh, to you, but it also moves us up, up the charts. And that's important because the more people who listen, uh, the more this industry is going to change uh, and the more we're able to bring these positive conversations about this industry uh, to the airwaves. So with all that being said, folks, have a wonderful day and keep making things. 